Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby here from the Digital Shelf Institute. There is no question that our future will continue to be one of disruption, either acute disruption like COVID or chronic disruption like the emergence of digital technologies across industries and across use cases. So the question isn't a matter of will there be disruption, but what do leaders do in response? Business professor and author Gerald Kane of Boston College, along with his co-authors, found themselves in the middle of a pandemic conducting deep research through hundreds of interviews with executives that resulted in new scholarship around thriving through disruption and the leadership skills it takes. The book is The Transformation Myth, and we had a great conversation about it. So Professor Kane, thank you so much for joining the podcast. And my first question is, uh, although it, it, it goes against every fiber of my respect for educated uh, people from college, may I call you Jerry? Absolutely. You're encouraged <laughs> to call me Jerry. Thank, thank you. you so much. But I'm really grateful to have read your book and to be able to, to pepper you with questions about it, it just, it's, it just caught my imagination uh, to have research of, of this depth come out of such a fraught period is so interesting that just it was informed by that time of acute disruption. But at the same time, I think you, you, and, you and your co-authors ended up with timeless practices for how we prepare for future inevitable disruptions, which I don't know, watching floods all over the world makes me feel like they're just gonna be coming at a faster rate than ever mm-hmm. before. Does it, I mean, I love that it wasn't merely an academic exercise as well. You make it actionable. Like throughout the book, there's a series of exercises that, that you've used with companies that are st- seeking to strengthen their agility, resilience and response to disruption. It's really an incredible piece of work. Uh, thank you for, for investing and in putting it together. Well, thank you. I mean, it was definitely a team effort. So yes. uh, I'm the academic on the, the team and three of my, co- well, myself and uh, Jonathan Kapolsky, he is now at, at Northwestern, and then two Deloitte consultants. So, and we work really well together. So we're able to take sort of the academic framework and the critical thinking side, combined with the experience uh, on the boots on the ground. Uh, and, you know, we really work together, I, I think, to create a whole that is better than the sum of its parts. And, you know, my colleagues at Deloitte did all of the, I gotta give them credit for all these exercises. You know, these are actually ones that they use with companies or, you know, have been using with companies. And then I'm bringing sort of, we conducted over 50 interviews um, with people, executives as they were leading their companies through COVID. Um, and it was generally both a an extremely rewarding and extremely stressful project. Mm-hmm. Um, because we were writing about something as we're living through it. Um, we have a deadline of December 2020 to finish the book when the pandemic isn't finished at that point. And how do you write something about a phenomenon when you don't know what the end is like? And so when, our, when, it, when we're coming out in September of 2021, and we were really careful throughout the book to talk about disruption generally and not COVID specifically. Yes. Um, and the more work we did, the more work we more we realized that disruption it is disruption that's the new normal. Whether it be COVID, whether it be the George Floyd uh, protests, whether it be floods, whether it be Australian wildfires, whether it be the vaccines, you know, which are 
creating uneven disruption across the world as some communities are more vaccinated than others. Um, you know, global leaders are having to really struggle um, with what's the right thing to do in the right place at the right time. Um, and so I think we hit the right tone, which was, um, we don't know what the future is going to be like. All we know is that disruption will continue and we can learn from the pandemic to understand how to ad adapt to disruption in our future. So that's yeah, really the theme of the book. And, and I think we hit it. As we're getting closer to our launch date, I'm feeling more confident about the tone we set throughout. Which I, I said really resonated for me. And, and you know, the kind of list of disruptions that you rattled off there uh, and knowing that they're gonna keep coming is, is exhausting, but being able to prepare for it is great. And also, so our listeners certainly experienced all of those as human beings. But in addition, they are in one of the most uh, disrupting and disruptive industries right now in retail and brand manufacturing and mm -hmm. consumer B2B and B2C. Like there's, uh, it, you know, uh, it, it seems like that's one of the most uh, disruptive industries that's, mm -hmm. that's happening right now. And so I'm, I, I really wanna dig into that because one of the core theses of your book is uh, needing to be a digitally resilient organization. Mm -hmm. And obviously digital is such a part of the way our listeners do business inside and among their partners and ecosystems, but also it's the way they, they now are connecting with yeah. consumers. It's where all the growth is coming from. And so it's mm -hmm. become a real, a real area of focus. So I'd love for you to walk, walk us through the characteristics of a digitally resilient organization and some examples that, that bring it to life for our listeners. Okay. Yeah, so let's take a step back. Um, and you know, really we, we frame a response to disruption, particularly in COVID um, in a three-part process. And we call it respond, regroup, and thrive. Um, so the first step is responding. And that was you know, really March and April of 2020. We realized we were something dealing with something unprecedented. Companies had to lock down. Um, and we figured out how we were going to keep doing business in the midst of this. We all migrated to Zoom. We all went digital and remote. Um, and we just figured out how to keep the doors open and the lights on. And by and large, I think that was pretty successful for most companies. Um, you know, if you would have asked me a year and a half ago, would the stock market be up? Would most companies be functioning uh, today as well as they are today, I would have said absolutely not. And I think what we've accomplished is actually pretty remarkable. Um, and it really goes to support the thesis of my previous book, which is called um, The Technology Fallacy, How People Are the Real Key to Digital Transformation. We've always been able, we've always had the capability to do this digital work. It's been the organization and the people and the risk aversion that has kept us from moving forward. And I think if there's a silver lining that's going to come out of this whole pandemic. Uh, it's that it really forced companies to engage in a level of digital, and 10 years worth of digital transformation over the course of a year, and really might help avoid that slow Chinese water torture that was already going on with digital disruption. And it might be this wake-up call that actually you know, leapfrogs many companies into the future. So that first was was uh, respond. Yeah, when I, and I wanted to dig into respond just a little bit more because yep. one of the case studies that stood out for me was Albert Bellotti, a CEO mm -hmm. of Beam Suntory. And they really saw the five priorities through, through acute COVID disruption. And 
uh, I don't know if you have those at the, the top of your head, but how, how would you characterize sort of how they approach respond? Yeah, I don't really have it uh, in front of me, um, so I'll, I'll paraphrase. And you know, when I was interviewing, it, it was a fantastic interview. Um, yeah. In fact, a series of interviews because we first interviewed their team that pivoted to produce hand sanitizer uh, in the midst of in the early days. And I thought that was, of course, alcohol companies knew how to make hand sanitizer. It was a far more complex process that really took not only Beam Suntory, but their competitors to work together to feel like, to, to make this problem, solve this problem. And, and they were even saying, you know, I, I never thought I'd be getting emails from my competitors on how do we solve this problem together. So that's um, a really sort of phenomenal story. I actually have on my website, www.profcane.com, we've been sharing profiles of leadership from some of our interviews, because there was just too much good stuff to put in the book. And they've been published in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and, I, and I factor them all on my, my website, you can go read some of them. But when I was interviewing uh, Albert Bellotti, I was, I was stunned that like two weeks after the, the crisis hit, he rattled off five priorities for them that pretty much matched our Respond to Group Thrive framework. And yeah. they were things like, make sure our employees are safe, make sure our customers, you know, things like that. It's make sure we can keep the business running in a safe, uh, responsible way. Uh, yeah, and then it and was, the, let's see what opportunities are out there. Yeah, and that's what I love. So, you know, I, I happen to have them in front of me. And, and, okay, great. I, <laughs> and one that I loved uh, was after the couple that you talked about, sort of protecting our people, securing our supply chain, big deal. The third was we continue to give back to society, which is central to our culture as a company. And in moments of disruption, that can be hard to focus on. You can sometimes throw those things to the back seat. Absolutely. And, that and that's and that's where the, the hand sanitizer initiative came yeah. from was yeah. how do we do that? And speaking to the people involved in that, they said it was extremely motivating in this crisis when everybody's afraid, when we don't know what to do, that at least gave them something to inspire them to work on. Uh, they, there's even a quote in there. It's like, they know they're not doing uh, frontline medical work, but this was the one thing they could do. And it felt good to be able to do it under sort of the banner of the company. And we've seen, seen a lot of stories like that where, um, you know, another great example is the health insurer Humana realized that many of its uh, members were having food insecurities. So they actually ramped up a food production capability and delivered over a million meals within the first three months. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, who would have thought that the health insurer would do that, but they said, if our mission is actually to provide, I don't remember what their mission is, but it's to, to provide healthiest patients or whatever, how can we do that if, our, if they're if our food insecure? People. So we, they stepped up and reinterpreted their mission differently as a result of the events on the ground. And again, super motivating for the company um, and the employees involved. Yeah, and I think the, the last two uh, in the Beam Suntory story that stood out to me because I think they'll resonate with our audiences. Great. Um, Beam Suntory saw consumption starting to shift. And I've heard that from certainly every <laughs> alcohol brand. Yes. <laughs> but, but also every, you know, yes, so many, every you know, food brand, you know, absolutely. digital, yeah, the digital yeah, shelf. Yeah. So, and they saw, we saw there's a new normal and we need to be winning in the new normal. And then finally, as you said, need to anticipate future trends and position ourselves to win in the long term, which I, it just, 
you know, it's not like a stunning, res, re, you know, no, realization but to, to, come to, to, but to be but able to, to say it. that in two, while we're in the midst of this. And so yeah. let's go to the other parts of the framework. Regroup yeah. is where you get a sense of what this new normal is like. And that's, I would argue, from about last May to now or to really to September 2020. And this whole sort of figuring out how to win in the future condition that's what we call the thrive stage. And I think that's yet to come. Um, and that's really the, 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 if there's one sort of goal for the book, it's to get executives as we hopefully knock on wood, you know, whether we're coming out of the pandemic or whether we're going into the last chapter of it, um, you know, start to think about, okay, now is not the time to go back to the way things were. And I think there's a real risk of that, of who we made it, we're done. Yeah. But to, to say, okay, we've developed some pretty remarkable capabilities over the last 18 months. How do we want to blend the best of both worlds, the pre-pandemic way of working with the, the, the pandemic innovations we've had to do to create a stronger, better, more innovative uh, organization going forward? And I actually think the next three to five years are going to be amongst the most interesting, exciting, dangerous period of business any of us will ever live through because you now have companies that have developed these massive new digital capabilities for competing that would have taken them a decade otherwise and you're going to unleash them into the marketplace and i think and i and i don't even think they know how they're going to use all of these new capabilities themselves yeah. there's going to be a ton of experimentation there's going to be a ton of innovation uh, as a professor, I'm super excited about it because I get to watch and study and learn. Um, <laughs> yeah. And my hope is that we can inspire you know, executives to say, okay, this is our time to thrive. This is our time to step up uh, and, and, and become more competitive, more agile uh, than we ever were before. And so I, I think you need that mindset shift to make it happen. Yeah, one of those new capabilities that stood out at me from one of your case studies was KLM, the airline KLM. Yes. And they had to, in the pandemic, with remote work and everything, they sh they started doing customer service on social because that's where their customers were reaching out to them. The phone right. lines were. Um, so talk about that and 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 sort of in your regroup story, sort of what happened. Uh, well, see, and really. the interesting thing, I have to correct one thing about your reading of the KLM story, which makes it so fascinating, um, is it wasn't about um, the pandemic at all. It was about the 2011 um, Icelandic volcano eruption. Oh my gosh. And I'm so, so no, but that's, that's the whole point is we wanted to use something that wasn't COVID to say, look at how this company went. Cause we don't have any examples of companies in the thrive stage yet. Cause we're not there. Yeah. So, but we looked at KLM and they first dealt with this massive shutdown, which of course we've seen replicated in the pandemic as well. They saw this massive shutdown. They turned to social media to respond, to respond. And they did, and they got through it. And they said, Phew, we're done. And it wasn't until six months later where the CEO said, what are we thinking? We just developed this massive new capability for customer relations that we just threw away. And now what we need to go back is dust that off and make sure we can capitalize on it to do better. And they ramped up a, a best-in industry social media platform, uh, a customer service thing. So I think the KLM story is actually an amazing story for us is don't be that KLM that says, no, they got it right. But for six months, they just said, phew, it's over. 
rather than saying, what can we take what we learned from this to be a better company? And so as we look 10 years previous, as we see examples of companies enduring disruption saying, phew, it's over, don't do that. Make sure we use the innovations to grow and be stronger and, and a, a better company. You know, I was, I was going to kind of, you have such an amazing section on remote work and because obviously that was an enormous change. And yes, to be honest, I was going to kind of avoid the topic because I think it's been talked about a lot. Yeah. However, um, I recently was speaking with um, the, the head of marketing at a consumer brand. And uh, he was talking to me about the fact that his company, which had gone obviously remote. Now yep. for manufacturers, there's you, you know, your manufacturing people need to be yes. in the plant. You know, I mean, things don't get made without human beings making it happen. But there's yep. a whole other set of capabilities that that went remote and could stay remote. And they're insisting that everyone come back. And, and I suppose everyone has to decide for themselves whether or not that's mm -hmm. the right decision. But in my mind, particularly when I think about the digital realm, there's so many employment opportunities out there for the digitally savvy people that to insist on on coming back completely to the way things were seems to me but i would love your thought on this like yep. how should how should companies be thinking about the value of being in person versus yep. remote work and the and the the employment opportunities it opens up yeah i mean we're going to see that's the other sort of quote unquote exciting time is i think we're going to see a massive reshuffling um, and there's no one right answer uh, for yeah. everybody because uh, employees say under 35 have hated remote work. You know, if I ask my students who wants to go work in an office, I think it was almost 100% for various reasons. They don't yeah. have a great work at home environment. They don't have a family to, you know, that they are spending time with. They have roommates that they may or may not get along with, but are stuck <laughs> with. Yeah. Um, whereas somebody my age, I'm perfectly content to stay at home. I got to spend more time with the, my teenagers and we bonded over stuff, but they hated it for a lot of it, but it was a great time. You know, I, there were aspects of the lockdown that were really rewarding for me. Mm -hmm. And I got, and I was super productive because I didn't have to go to pointless meetings. I didn't have right. to go commute into the office. Yeah. Um, so what you, but what we're seeing, so first thing to do, what I recommend companies do is at the very least, take a step back, survey your employees, get a sense of where people are, what people want, um, and figure out how you're going to combine the best of both worlds. Because I think anybody that says we're staying remote fully, um, that's also not a great solution because there are things that you can do, like starting new projects is much better in person. Uh, building culture is much better in person. Mentoring and, and uh, networking is much better in person. And, and a lot of those things, innovation, is much better in person. Um, and so to, to throw all of that out, I think would be a mistake. Um, at the same time, many companies have found that they can hire a more diverse workforce, um, that they can get a more robust employee and talent base that opens up new markets to them, um, that I think it'd be silly to only limit yourself to um, co-located employees. You know, particularly in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, they found that they've been able to access immense new talent because they're not limited to only people who can afford or willing to pay the premium to live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and so, you know, what do you do? And in some cases, um, 
you know, one company I worked with started the pandemic with 10 employees, is coming out of it with over 100. They had a very strong in-person office culture to start. But then the nine, the 900% growth were all employees that were outside of the area. So how do you go back into the office when all your employees are somewhere else? And so I think it's good. I think employees are going to have lots of choices. I think there's demand, super demand for the best talent out there. Um, and so I think companies that d- decide on one path forward without doing some reflection, some surveying of their employees, to figuring out what it is they want their organization to be, brainstorming about what is the value of in-person work versus remote work. Um, I just think those companies are going to struggle because I think we are in a massive reshuffle um, and we may change up as things go. And so I, I do think it's worth companies rather than just declaring one way or the other, um, spending some time thinking about it and working with their employees. Otherwise, they may find that some of their best employees leave because they have more opportunities to do so than ever before. Yeah, there was a, um, and I'm trying to find it here in my notes. Uh, you you said in your research, the good news is that early data from Asia suggests a little co-location can go a long mm-hmm. way toward reducing the limitations of remote work. And a friend of mine works uh, for a large consulting organization and they've been remote uh, throughout, but now that things are starting to come back together, what they're having teams do is just go co-locate in a city that you all want to go to for a week and and get together in conference rooms and and hash things out. And I thought that was really smart. I mean, you know, they they have the travel budget flexibility to be able to do that kind of thing, but it makes sense that let's at least make people happy where they're where they're getting together. Absolutely. Are you seeing and things I, like that? Ideas yeah, like that? I, actually, this is the first I've seen it, but um, I have certainly, I call it the destination organization yeah. where, you know, that's a way that, so when we talk about hybrid work, you know, there's a tendency of, oh, I go into the office two days a week and I'm home three days a week or vice versa. There are so many different, more robust ways to think about hybrid work. Um like these destination organizations where you go to a place like, you know, so if everybody's going in every other day, do they go in together or do they, you know, what, how do you make sure the right people are together at the right place at the right time? Because just saying come in half the time, isn't going to work. You don't get those synergies. Um, yes. and you don't get those uh, serendipitous connections. So no, the bright side is we have a lot of electronic data and that's what humanize was doing was sort of looking at electronic data to look at what's working and what's not, particularly in global organizations can use data from one region or not or another to sort of figure out what's gonna work better in other situations. So um, yeah, I think I think for me, if I were to say there is an answer, generally it's, it's some sort of hybrid workplace. What hybrid workplace, what a hybrid workplace though is so varied and has so much potential, um, I think it's worth spending some time consciously and intentionally thinking about what that's going to work look like because you know this is an unprecedented opportunity to sort of engage in organizational change with a historically low level of resistance you'd be <laughs> silly not to take advantage of this opportunity to figure out what can be your best organization going forward without this massive political campaign and change management initiative, da, da, da. Habits have been disrupted. 
you have a unique opportunity to rebuild the organization you want to be the best organization it can be. Take some time thinking about that and figuring it out before you you make any single decision. Uh, Jerry, I just love that idea of now is the time. Like people have, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, and in a lot of ways, unfortunately, have to had become um, accustomed to change in this moment. And that is the time to keep shaking until you, you get to, to the practices that are gonna restore growth and, and make people feel safe and et cetera, right? Not just restore growth, accelerate growth. That's what yes. I'm trying to shift Thank that you. mindset is. And that, you know, I've got to give credit to uh, my co-author, Rich Nanda, who's the strategy head at Deloitte. This has been his lesson the whole time is this is, this is an unprecedented opportunity. And there've been so many cool things I've seen, we interviewed the, the sportswear company Fanatics. Um, and in 2020, uh, summer of 2020, they did a $350 million fundraising round because they knew there were going to be opportunities for mergers and acquisitions out there. So they wanted to raise money. It got oversubscribed. The following summer, no, March, I think, I don't remember, they raised another $350 million at a $12 billion valuation or whatever double it was before. So they were able to innovate. And um, another company I talked to um, called Trove said, you know, his attitude, they said, we can't afford not to take advantage of this opportunity to grow our business and that the best leaders see opportunity everywhere. And as I interviewed digitally mature and digitally resilient companies, that optimistic mindset and that, that opportunistic mindset was that characteristics that really um, sort of defined those people. And um, that's something I think that it's not just some people were born with. I think it's they just recognize the opportunity. And I think what I'm trying to do, if I'm getting a bit evangelical, I'm sorry. Uh, but I do think this is, you know, it, it, managers and executives need to have that shift of mindset that this is our, this is our time. This is our chance. This is our opportunity to make the organization, the, enact the strategy, develop the change, recruit the employees, whatever it is. This is the time because we, there's never been a better time to sort of make those changes, make that growth, turbocharge your company into the, into the future. I love it. I, I want to <laughs> sing the anthem and wave the flag. <laughs> Absolutely. Get on board. So I can't, uh, I can't let you go without, there's a chapter 11, rebuilding yep. disrupted customer relationships. Uh, I'm not going to go through it in detail uh, yep. on this recording because there's so much there. Um, and I want people to get the book and, and read it. In, yep. It'll be on the shelves when? In September 28th, 2021. Perfect. Okay, um, so so let's make sure uh, uh, you and I think can you pre-order it now? On... Yeah, it is available on Amazon and Great. your local bookseller and independence and all that sort of stuff. Terrific. So, um, so many relationships with customers have been disrupted during this time, right? And you talk about the need to establish trust. Yes. Or reestablish trust. Excuse me. And so you talk about the need to establish trust or reestablish trust, and you talk about four dimensions. Yep. Humanity, transparency, capability, and reliability. Um, just because I'm sort of a heart-centered person. Yeah. 
I'd love to just focus on humanity, which you described mm-hmm. and your author, co-authors described as being the most salient. Tell me about what that word means in, in terms of customer relationships and how you can sort of establish humanity at scale, if you will. Yeah, um, and that's a great question. And that may be one, I gotta give credit where credit's due. Um, this chapter was really mostly the brainchild of my co-author, Jonathan Kapolsky, who teaches um, marketing at Northwestern and is the former CMO at Deloitte. Um, so this was one of his big things. Um, but you know, I think it goes through, um, one thing we've seen come out, and this is not just with employee, this is not just with customers, but with also with employees is this, we've seen a new sense of authenticity um, is treating people like people and not just as numbers on the page and not just as slots on the org chart and not just as da 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 da. That, you know, there's nothing like a shared crisis um, to help us see each other as genuine people. And so mm-hmm. the more that you can, I think, uh, you know, and then in a period where we've a lot of us have been locked down that we're tr- craving human con, you know, I've talked to more random strangers over the last several months <laughs> than probably in the last 10 years because you know you have something in common. Um, You know, they're dealing with the same stuff. And so the more you can humanize your brand, humanize, give your employees the opportunity to humanize the interactions with people, to be personable, um, to be empathetic. You know, if we go back to Humana and they're sort of dealing with food insecurities, they didn't go looking for that. Their call center employees just, there was just noticing an uptick in mentioning of that by the consumer, by their customers, um, while they were on routine calls with them. And so to have the mechanisms by which they can elevate those concerns to a level by which the organization could then mobilize and act on it, I mean, to me, that is, if there's ever been a bigger sense of response of humanity where, you know, a, a company develops a capability simply because their customers are in need of it. You know, that's a, the best it. example ever. And so how do you begin to collect that data? So you're talking about it at scale. How do you begin yeah. to collect the data and analyze that data so you can begin to get some of the needs um, that people have? And I do think people are struggling right now, not just financially for those people, but emotionally and socially. And, you know, we're here on Cape Cod and there's a, although people are here vacationing and and relaxing, there is a sort of a sense of tension underneath where a lot of businesses have had real problems with customers being um, aggressive and combative and, and how do you sort of, and we've seen, you know, businesses like one of the local uh, restaurants here shut down because they didn't like the way that their um, employees were being treated. And that's a way to humanize the brand, to say, we're going to make business decisions um, to protect our employees. And they've seen such a massive outpouring from the community of support that, um, you know, just act. So it's not just about marketing. It's not just about reaching out, but it's about having communicating the humanity of your organization. So people are interacting with people rather than people are interacting with a massive corporation or just a business or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's such an important opportunity for our listeners who as brand manufacturers, you know, for a lot of years, it was um, put product on a pallet and ship it to a retailer. And, and I'm oversimplifying, but call it a day. Right. Yep. But now 
with the consumer, you know, talk about disrupted customer relationships. The consumer has disrupted the relationship with their brands, right? They, yes. They are going to shop wherever the heck they want to shop. Yep. And they want the information they need when they need it, or they'll go find somebody else. And I feel like um, using these new direct-to-consumer relationships as data gathering opportunities to feed every other interaction is a big opportunity, but also a huge data and systems challenge for-, for Absolutely. Yeah, you've been seeing- But I think that's where some of the value comes from. because that, And that's where, it, that's where it goes from just being- a, um, you know, a night, not, I want to say platitude, but an attitude to a discipline. It's how do we take it from, okay, we want our, our employees to um, engage with humanity, but then, you know, what does that look like? We have data that can, that can tell us that we can analyze this. We can do it with discipline and structure. Um, and, you know, as a data geek, I, I love doing that stuff. So Jerry, to close, uh, uh, first of all, I want to make sure I get it right. Prof Kane, K A N E dot com or org? Yes, P R O F K A N E dot com. And, and, and as, as Jerry said, there are amazing um, case study stories on that site that I think will be inspirational and hopefully will inspire you to, uh, to read the book. But one of the things you did was you held off writing the epilogue until the last possible moment, right? Yes. And, um, and the quote that I love from the epilogue was the only response to a world characterized by disruption is to build the capabilities to engage in ongoing workplace reinvention. Yes, uh, because if you, so we had to finish the book in October. Um, and so that's why we said, please let us hold off on this. So if you think of what happened between October, 2020 <laughs> yeah. and now, I mean, vaccines, elections, political uprisings, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a different world now than it was then. And, and it, it goes with that tension of how do we possibly write a book while we're, while we're living through the phenomena we're writing about. And it was that step back that said, what we're writing about is disruption. And that is not new. That is not limited to this event. That is not going to end uh, anytime soon. And in fact, I think more disruption from a business perspective is still in advance as we cope with the aftershock and the fallout of, of COVID. Um, but, you know, regardless, and, and you should note that that quote came from uh, Shamim Muhammad, who's the CIO of CarMax in 2016. And when he took over, oh, wow. he said, I don't know what the future is going to be like. All I can do is create an organization that can adapt to change. And boy, was he right. You know, he didn't need to know that the pandemic was coming, but he built an organization that was able to adapt to whatever chance threw at him. And it's been invaluably helpful um, as they've coped with the pandemic. So I think that is the right answer. And that's sort of our, our framing of the book is, um, you know, it's not about COVID, it's about disruption. And let's learn from this disruption to help us for, with our next one. Because in our interviews, we saw many of our respondents said, well, I knew how to do this because I dealt with a financial crisis, or yes. I dealt with 9-11, or I dealt with da-da-da-da, you know, I dealt with crisis before. So I dusted off that playbook to say, how do we need to do this? A, a great example is Hilton. You know, they said, um, you know, 90% drop in demand, what are you going to do? And Hilton just said, rather than trying to hang on to money or hold people to reservations, they just said, give it all back. Because we know if we do it right now, 
customers are going to remember it a year from now, two years from now. And Hilton, there's another great example with Hilton of treating their employees really well. Um, in the midst of laying off 45 or 55,000 people, they're still voted the number three best place to work in America um, because of the humanity going back, the, with the way they treated their customers, their employees. And that was a very intentional decision on their part. And it looks like it's paying off. I go back to those four qualities of of um, of establishing trust, whether it's customers, employees, whoever, humanity, transparency, capability, and reliability. And Jerry, I have to say, your your book just digs into all of those in spades. One area I didn't even get to, which is super frustrating, um, is the you you outline the the four skills of leaders who are ready for disruptive change. So. If I might impose, could I try and get you back sometime to, to talk about those set of skills? Because I know our, our listeners would, would benefit from them. Absolutely. We'd be happy to talk further. You are very kind and generous. So again, the, the book is The Transformation Myth. Um, tremendous read, backed up by, I think, 10,000 um, survey responses. 20,000. 20,000 20, that were before, I should clarify, we, we've been researching digital disruption generally for the last eight to 10 years. And this, we found that many of those insights really informed what companies were dealing with. So it's not anything fundamentally new. It's just an acceleration of where things have been going. And we use that data to sort of give us insights into uh, what we're dealing with now. Great. Well, Professor Kane, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on and discussing this book. And I look forward to part two of this conversation. Me too. Thank you so much. My thanks to Jerry Kane for joining us. Please share this episode with your colleagues as there is more disruption to come. And the link to the Amazon product detail page for the book is in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. Drop me an email at peter at digitalshelfinstitute.org with any ideas. Thanks for being part of our community.